0: Today's our guest is Kim Lisa Taylor from Syndication Attorney's PLLC. Welcome, Kim. Hello. Thank you for having me. Sure, absolutely. And uh, Kim, uh, would you share a little bit uh, more about yourself and your background?
1: So I'm a corporate securities attorney. I help people who are raising money from private investors. Uh, My law firm sets up their corporate entities and then also make sure that they understand the securities rules that they have to comply with when they're uh, collecting money from private investors. So we will create all the documents they need to be able to do that, do all the filings, make sure they understand the rules so they can comply, and uh, then they'll go out and raise the money. Uh, my background, I started out, uh, actually, I'm uh, licensed as a professional geologist, so my I had a prior career as an environmental consultant, and uh, went to law school late in life, decided to change careers and and become a lawyer. And I started out practicing this area of the law in 2008. Uh, Prior to that, I did some homeowner association law, real estate litigation, and some environmental litigation. But I learned that I really like doing the transactional work better, and helping people put deals together is a lot more gratifying to me than uh, than fighting about it in court. I
0: it. yeah. Thank you, thank you for sharing your background, and and you written a book, best uh, amazing best selling book, how to legally raise private money. So, would you share a little bit more about that, and how, how exactly, like from both active investors and passive investors, uh, need to follow the rules. Yes.
1: So the the book is really kind of a step-by-step of how to position yourself so that you can legally raise private money, helping you understand uh, what things you should do before you even get to that point, such as learning a specific skill, you know, learning from one of the masters in an area how to buy multifamily or how to buy self-storage or something like that, Um, and uh, then going on and just describing the process of you know, what your structure is going to look like from a corporate standpoint, you know, what your company structure is going to look like, how you're going to split money with investors, how you're going to earn money, and uh, then also uh, teaching you what securities laws mean and how they apply to what you're doing and how do you what, what you have to do to comply with them so that you don't get in trouble. And then all, all the way at the end of the book, we talk about Uh, how to market your offerings legally to private investors because there's a couple of nuances to that. There's, There's kind of a friends and family rule that you can follow that doesn't allow you to advertise, and then you have to go through a specific series of steps to establish relationships before you can offer the interest to investors, which is where most of our clients start. Uh, Or then there's a way that you can advertise the offerings, but then you're restricted to only investors with certain financial qualifications can invest with you. And then the last chapter of my book is actually written for passive investors. And the reason I included that in the book was because I feel like it's important for passive investors to understand what these syndicators and these people that put these group investments together, what they're supposed to be doing so that they can then spot the people that aren't doing it correctly. And there are a lot of people that just don't understand. You know, They, they don't comply either because they don't know, they don't care, or you know, they, they don't think it applies to them, but usually none of that is true. And so if someone who's interested in passively investing were to read the book, understand the uh what the document should look like and how the structure should be and then they see something that's significantly different and they might know that uh, that's a red flag and maybe they shouldn't invest with that person
0: got it and so since you mentioned about passive investors so what exactly passive investors need to look in, in in ppm
1: so the things you need to look for is uh who the principals are, you know, make sure that you at least know one of them and look into the back background a little bit. You can do that with a Google search. Uh, if you're investing a, a lot of money, you the, you might even require a background check, but making sure that you understand how the company is structured, you know, what your place in it is, what kind of voting rights you may or may not have and understanding how frequently they plan to Uh, Look at distribution. So if it's a construction project, maybe there's not going to be any income generated for a couple of years. So you have to be prepared to wait for a couple of years until the, the project is occupied and starts to generate income, maybe before you receive anything back. Um, you also want to understand what's called a waterfall, and that's when they distribute cash. How is it distributed? Who gets paid first? Who gets paid second? Who gets paid third? And uh, you know how are their their splits, or are there preferred returns that go to the investor class before the management gets paid, and that kind of thing? So you want to read those sections carefully. You also want to read the fee structure. Uh, carefully and make sure that you understand it and you think it's fair. And uh, you know if you have objections to their fee structure or their waterfall structure, then perhaps it's not the right investment for you. Got it. But there's one other thing about the PPM. Let me just mention this, is that there's usually a section in there called risks. And this is what the SEC really wants you to pay attention to is read the risks and make sure that you understand them, because these are all things that could affect your ability to see a return on your investment or maybe even to get your money back at all. And so you need to understand what those risks are and make sure that you can afford to take those risks before you... Uh, Invest in that project, because if if you were to lose all of your money in that project that, you know, you, you need to be able to assert that that's not going to be financially devastating for you, that's something you could recover from you know nobody wants to think about it but you do have to think about it because there are certain times when you know maybe a project gets lost to foreclosure because there's a giant insurance claim and the insurance company won't pay and uh, you know the during it, it just becomes a quagmire where you know the property gets lost and you don't get your money back so you've got to be careful it doesn't happen very often but it does happen occasionally. And, uh, you know, hopefully you don't ever get caught up in any of those deals, but but uh, you need to read the risks and understand what those risks are and make sure that you can withstand them.
0: Yeah. Uh, and like, you no, know, there are two kinds of investors, accredited investors and non-accredited investors. So is there any latest updates on accredited investor status or any amendment?
1: Yeah. December uh, last year, there, there were some changes to the law that came into effect that uh, kind of expanded the definition of accredited investors, but largely it's still the same as it's always been. For individuals, if you're trying to determine if an individual is an accredited investor, then uh, they either have to have a million dollars net worth, excluding equity in their primary residence, or they have to have $200,000 a year income if they're single or 300,000 if they're a couple. And the couple could be a married couple, it could be a cohabitating couple, um, uh, but they're still allowed to to uh, combine their assets or their income. And that's for the last two years. Those income requirements are the, for the last two years with an expectation they'll continue into the current year. Um, there's other... There's some other definitions of an accredited investor, which includes any member of the management team. So if you're a member of a management team of a syndicate, then by definition, you're accredited. You can invest in your own deals. You can't necessarily invest in someone else's deals. Knowledgeable employees. So someone who's a knowledgeable employee about that particular offering is eligible to invest as an accredited investor. And then there's people with certain securities licenses that can also you know, take test and uh, become accredited by having uh, those, uh, taking that test.
0: From funding investor, investors' point, I feel like, so is there any restrictions or what kind of rules applicable for funding investors like Canada or, you know, Europe or Asia?
1: Yeah, so there is a specific exemption for invest. So there's something called Regulation D Rule 506 that applies to investors who are U.S. persons. And a U.S. person is someone who is either a citizen, or a legal resident of the U.S., citizen of the U.S., live, lives in the U.S., And uh, they're going to be they have their money already in the United States and they're going to be using that bank account in order to make the investment. And maybe they have a company that they've already established here. So those would be considered U.S. persons. Everybody else is considered a non U.S. person. So if they're not a citizen, they're not a legal resident, they don't live in the U.S. and they're wiring their funds from an offshore account then they're going to be considered a non-U.S. person. So Regulation D Rule 506 would not apply to them. There's a separate exemption called Regulation S. as like SAM that uh, applies to these non-U.S. persons. And uh, there's not really any financial qualification requirements for non-U.S. persons. But you do have to be cautious about who you bring in from other countries. And, And just in general, you have to be cautious about who you let into your deals because, There are people that would try to money launder through real estate investors and you don't want to get caught up in somebody's money laundering scheme because then you're going to be probably the one that goes to jail because you're here. And uh, so you don't want to do that. You need to be careful about the sources of that money. Make sure that it's your family, your friends, people that you know, not people who approach you, who say, oh, I have a whole lot of money that I need to invest in a deal. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do yours. So you just need to be suspicious of people that you don't know until you can investigate them properly and make sure that that money was uh, achieved from legitimate sources. And there's some lists uh, that the uh, U.S. Department of Treasury maintains they have uh, something called the office of foreign assets control ofac so you can look that up you can look up uh, us department of treasury ofac and they have some lists of prohibited persons and prohibited countries so there's uh, that you cannot do business with because these people are either known money launderers drug kingpins you know uh, involved in weapons of mass destruction or something that has i require the U.S. to say you can't do business with these people if you're a U.S. person. And so you've just got to be cautious of those lists. You should always get a copy of everybody's passport, yeah, even whether they're U.S. or they're non-U.S. You should do this just as a general practice, run it through that list and uh, make sure that their name doesn't come up. Or if it does, you know maybe it's somebody else with that same name. So you just have to do some investigation to find out if it's the same person or somebody else. But you want to be able to demonstrate that you did that due diligence on those investors in the event that uh, the Department of Homeland Security were to ever start investigating your deal for some kind of illicit uh, source of funds, then you would want to be able to show that you at least did that due diligence and you you tried to vet those investors to determine that they were legitimate before you accepted their money.
0: So is there any kind of third party vendors or third party software available to do this kind of due diligence for not foreign investors?
1: For foreign investors, it's very hard. Uh, You may be able to get somebody to do it for a couple hundred dollars per investor, but you would have to pay for that before you accepted their money. So you'd have to make sure that you are willing to take on that cost. Um, The other thing about non U.S. investors is that there are tax implications if uh, there's something called the Foreign Investment and Real Property Tax Act of 1980 that requires the syndicator, the person that's that's pulling these funds to withhold any distribution withhold uh taxes from the distributions that are going to be sent out of the country so before you send money to somebody outside the u.s you need to make sure that their taxes are paid and so you do that by sending the estimated amount of taxes to the u.s internal revenue service and making sure that the investor themselves Has to understand that if they want to get that money back, or or some portion of that money back, then they have to actually get a foreign investor uh, identification number, an F, a foreign employer identification number, FEIN, in the U.S. That they could then file taxes, a tax return in the U.S., and maybe receive all or a portion of that um, withholding amount back. So think of it like a payroll tax, right? So you're just going to take some of the money instead of sending it directly to the, the person who invested, you're going to send some to the IRS. And then if they want to get it back, they have to file a tax return. Um, depending on the tax treaty between the U S and their country, uh, those refunds may or may not be available. And it's very, you know, every country has a different tax treaty, or maybe some don't have any tax treaties at all. And, uh, it's very country specific. So it's, it's difficult for you to do an offering that uh, allows people from all different countries to participate, uh, because we might have to do some advanced tax planning in, uh, as far as making sure that we're setting up the company correctly so they're they're not gonna get a double hit on taxes. Just as an example, if you were gonna be bringing someone in from Canada, Uh, Canada has a tax treaty with the US that says that if a Canadian citizen invests in a US corporation or a US limited partnership, that whatever tax they pay in the US would be credited towards whatever tax they owe in Canada. So they're not getting double taxed. But that tax treaty was written before limited liability companies existed and it hasn't been modified since. So they don't apply it to LLC. So if a Canadian investor invests in an LLC, in the United States, then they would actually have to pay tax under FERPTA in the U.S., and then they would also have to pay tax in Canada. So there could be things like that that we have to take into consideration in deciding where, if we're going to set up some kind of a blocker company that has a better tax treaty between their country and uh, versus the one that the U.S. has, and maybe they invest in that company, and then that company makes the investment in the U.S. company. So it's, it's a lot of different things that have to be considered when you're using
0: foreign investors. Got it. Yeah, that that totally makes sense. Thank you for sharing that information. It's a very, very important information. Yeah, and there's
1: one third thing, uh, Rama, since this is of interest to you, is that each country has its own securities laws. So the US SEC only governs the residents in its jurisdiction. So within the United States borders, it also governs uh securities offerings that are being originated within the u.s but if you are going to be soliciting investors from a different country then you really need to speak to a securities attorney or equivalent in that country to find out if there's any restrictions on who can invest with you or how you can solicit those investors because a lot of them are going to have similar rules to ours where you know you can ask people that you know but you can't uh, run ads in the paper or maybe you can even hire uh, a securities broker dealer in that country that can sell these interests for you. So you've got to really understand the the deal structure, the tax aspects, um, and uh, the securities compliance.
0: Got it, got it. And, and that's good to know that. And is, is that accredited and unaccredited status applicable for foreign investors, Kim? Okay. No, uh,
1: because under Regulation S, there are no financial requirements, but you could, as a policy, establish that you know we want all of the people in our deals to have similar financial qualifications so they have shared interests, and uh, then you could apply those standards to them voluntarily, but it's not required. And so, for instance, if you're going to do a Rule 506C offering in the U.S. that allows you to freely advertise for investors, the standard practice is that you would uh, also restrict that to accredited
0: investors from abroad. Got it. And and how exactly this uh, 1031 uh, exchange is applicable in syndications?
1: It's very difficult to do 1031s with a syndicate uh, because the typical structure for a real estate syndicate is that you would create a limited liability company that would sell off interest to investors and then the management or the syndicator would keep some of those interests for itself for its sweat equity contributions. And in that case, you're selling personal property interests In that company. So it's not real property, uh, you know, and the 1031 exchange rules require a like kind exchange. So if someone is selling real estate, then in order to qualify for the exchange, they have to buy directly deeded real estate. So they would not be able to exchange that for some personal property interest in an LLC. So the way that that's done is that they would uh, actually have to become tenants in common with. Uh, maybe a syndicate, and they would own direct deeded title to a portion of that property. And so, you know, if you're an active, you wanting to be a syndicator, you're not going to want to do that for somebody who's only investing $50,000. So, you know, my, what I always say is that the only time that makes sense is. If it's your money, first of all, it's you that's exchanging out of another property into your own deal, then it makes sense for you to create this tenant co- tenant in common structure for your portion of the deal. And then if you still have to raise money for investors, your, your uh, 1031 can be a tenant in common with an actual syndicate. So you could have a syndicate and a tenant in common structure both in one deal. Um, but I always say it's either gotta be your money or it needs to be enough money that it's worth it to do this additional uh, paperwork and legal structure for the tenant in common. And also, um, you know there's additional legal costs that go along with that as well. So you just got to be careful in making sure that you're understanding uh, you know what kind of different legal obligations are applied and that you're willing to do that. Part of it, the problem with tenants in common is it requires unanimous consent from all of the tenants in common in order to sell the property or to refinance the property um, or to engage in certain major things. And there's a whole list of rules that the SEC, or not the SEC, but the IRS uh, requires in order to maintain that tenant and common status so that your company doesn't get uh, treated like a partnership, which would then disallow the 1031 exchange benefits. So there's just a lot of um, things you have to think about. So if if somebody's bringing in a large amount of money that you can't raise any other way, then it makes sense for you to go ahead and uh, allow them to do the 1031 exchange, and then you raise the rest of the money. um, That's okay. But, but you're also then the third part of that is that you're giving away that portion of the property to that 1031 investor, because according to the IRS rules, the profit splits have to occur at the property level. So if you were going to keep 30 percent of that company ownership for yourself um, on account of what you, you know, your group puts together as its syndicate investment, um, you would only be able to keep 30 percent of what your syndicate uh, contributes. And the other portion would be, you know, so if you had a 50/50 tenant and common owners, then 50% of the profits will go directly to the tenant and common owner. 50% would come to your syndicate, and you only get your share out of the 50% that comes to your syndicate. So it's not as uh, as beneficial as you might think, not for syndicators.
0: Yeah. So he uh, that 1031 part will not be a passive investing; it will be active investing, right? That's right. Okay, got it. How exactly these SEC laws are different for fund of funds, Kim?
1: Yeah, so for funds of funds, there's additional regulatory requirements. So when you're doing buying direct real estate, you really only have to worry about Regulation D and Rule 506 and the SEC rules about that. <laughs> with, a fund of, uh, with fund of funds, there's some additional rules that reply, apply Um, relating to whether you have to register as an investment company and also relating to whether you have to register as an investment advisor. And uh, the reason for that is because when you're buying direct real estate, there's some exceptions that say, well, if you're owning and controlling real estate, those aren't securities securities. So we're not going to, you know, tell you you have to be an investment advisor or a registered investment company in order to do that. But if your fund, you've created a fund that's going to invest in somebody else's deal, and you're not going to be in directly uh, deeded title to that real estate, you're actually buying securities in somebody else's syndicate. And therefore, you have to then, uh, because now you're advising your fund on how to buy securities, now you are going to have to look for an exemption from having to register as an investment company. And there is one that says that you can have 99 investors or less, but uh, you, then you would also have to file some paperwork to register as an exempt reporting advisor under sec rules and you may have to get a registration as an investment advisor at your state level where you live uh, so it just add some additional complications if you want to do that and so what i always tell people is you know is your is your uh intent to become a syndicator or is your intent to become an investment advisor because if you want to be an investment advisor then go take the test and go work for somebody that uh, provides those services for a while and then maybe Maybe you can go off and become an independent advisor on your own. But if your intent is not to do that and to actually invest in real estate, then you need to go out and find the real estate and you need to learn how to do that. Or you need to become partners with people who are doing that at the management level so that you can be Uh, instead of you're creating your own separate group that's going to invest in their deal, you're actually part of their group and you're bringing your investors to their deal. And uh, as long as the management is in direct control of that real estate, then you don't have to worry about those uh, 99 investor rule or having to register as an investment advisor.
0: Got it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So Mm -hmm. so what is your current focus?
1: Um, uh, You know, our... uh, Our firm only does syndications. Uh, That's what we've done uh, ever since we started. And, uh, you know, that's where we're good at. Uh, So we do real estate securities offerings or syndications. Um, and that's really all we focus on. We do have another attorney who works for us uh, that if uh, you want to do some kind of a startup or uh, you know, something other than real estate, or you wanna do some kind of blockchain or tokenization uh, or crypto or something like that, then, then he would be the one that would help you with those things. And he can also take companies public if you wanna you know, go into a public
0: company got it got it and any of your personal habits that are helping you to be successful
1: um yeah i think probably one of the ones that uh that helped me the most at a time when you know things were kind of tough um i used to uh, i read a book called the miracle morning and it had uh you know six or six things you were to do every morning for at least 10 minutes um you know including meditation exercise reading writing visualization affirmations. And it was uh, really helpful to if anybody's in a slump or you feel like you're in a rut, uh, I highly encourage you to read that book because it will help lift you out of that and kind of remind you of why you're doing this and uh, you know, what's important and uh you know what things you're thankful for and all of those things I think help you kind of recenter your life and get back on track.
0: Yeah, great book. Yeah, definitely.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And How how are you giving back to community, Kim?
1: Well, we have a lot of educational resources. My goal has always been to educate people who want to be able to raise money from private investors in order to scale their business. My goal has always been to help them understand how to do it uh, because it is a bit complicated. But I try to boil it down into plain English so that anybody could understand it. We work with a lot of people who have never raised money before, teaching them how to do their first deals, helping them with that, and then helping them, you know, go on and scale their businesses and become, you know, either do more and more deals or uh, bigger deals. And, you know, that's always gratifying to us because we feel like we're helping our clients, but we're also helping them help their investors. So we're having a a wider reach.
0: Awesome. And how can listeners can connect with you, Kim?
1: The best way to reach us is through our website at syndicationattorneys.com. If you go there, first of all, I would invite invite you to uh, go to our library. Um, Also, if we do have a podcast that's called Raise Private Money Legally, I would encourage you to subscribe to that. But go into the library on our website and search out the articles. There's over 50 different one or two page articles. There's frequently asked questions. All of our uh, 60 previously recorded podcasts are there for you to listen to. And uh, you can really get a lot of education from that. Also, when I do podcasts like this, if I uh, have access to the recordings, I also put those on our website so you can listen to other interviews that I've done. Um, So I just encourage you to uh, go there, get educated. If you don't know much about this field, that's a really great place to start. Um, And while you're there, if you want to schedule an appointment with uh, one of our staff or me, you'll see some options to do that. Just uh, click that button on uh, how to schedule an appointment.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And thank you very much, Kim. And thank you for sharing different aspects of, you know, SEC laws. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Thank you so much. Uh
0: Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP 360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.